We are reading out of Acts today, Acts 2. First, we're going to be doing 1 through 4, and then we're going to skip over to 14 through 21. So when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last day, says God, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show them wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's a reading of God's word. <laughs> Got a little applause. Well, good morning, everybody. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open them or unlock them to Acts chapter 2. And I want to do a little recap before we get back to Acts chapter 2. So Jesus rises from the dead. It's the greatest thing that ever happened. Jesus rises from the dead. He appears to his disciples. He does miracles. He gives them a commission. And he takes them to this mountain. And on the mountain, he gives a few final words. And then he ascends up into heaven, into the clouds. And then something really surprising happens. Nothing. Nothing happens after that. The disciples go back to Jerusalem. They're worshiping. They're praying. Nothing happens. They're waiting, thinking about what God might do. Nothing happens. The church doesn't explode. New converts aren't pouring in. They're not going to the ends of the earth. They're just there. And nothing really happens. And you've got to imagine a little bit into this, they're sitting around having a meeting. The disciples are having a meeting. And they're kind of like, is this what we were supposed to be doing? Is this, are we, are we doing the right thing here? Like, I always imagine that Peter's the one that asks these questions because Peter's always the one that asks these questions. And he says, maybe we need a new mission statement. And pretty quickly, his older brother Andrew's like, no, 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 we don't need a new mission statement. We don't need a brand refresh. We've got a very clear mission statement. Go into all the world preach the gospel, make disciples, baptize them, teach them to obey all that God has commanded. We're great on the mission statement. We don't need anything else. And he's like, well, well, maybe we need a new strategy or something. Maybe we should kind of refresh what we're trying to do. We should redo the org chart. Maybe we should do something different. And somebody else pipes in. Maybe John is like, no, you know what? Jesus told us how we're supposed to carry this out. We've seen him do it for years. I think, I think we're good on that. And then somebody says, Maybe we need new people. That's what we need. We need new people. And this one's the one that people are like, yeah, maybe. I mean, because 
Things had not gone that well for this group of people, if you think about it. There's 12 of them at the beginning. One of them defects, turns in their leader to the authorities, and gets him killed. Then the other ones, as he's being killed, scatter. They totally forget everything they've learned from him. They say, I don't even know him. Peter denies him three times. They scatter. They're not there when he needs them. There's only one at the foot of the cross with Jesus' mother, Mary. They're like, maybe we do need a people refresh. They're like, you know what? No. We don't need a people refresh. What they must have remembered at that point is what Jesus told them right before he ascended to heaven. They said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them in Acts chapter 1, verse 7, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed on his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to all the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, they were looking on and lifted up, and he was lifted up in a cloud, took him out of their sight. They must have remembered at that point, well, we don't, we don't need new vision, we don't need new strategy, we don't need new people, we need new power. That's what we need. We need new power. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to come and then the church will be born. And there's a reason why Luke, who wrote the book of Acts and the book of Luke, it's a two-part series, and there's a reason that he arranges his gospel and the book of Acts the way he does. Partially, it's because this is the way that things happen, but another part of it is he wants to emphasize certain things in both books. In fact, if you were going to outline both of these books, you would realize that there are parallel events that take place that should influence the way we see the other event. So if you go back to the book of Luke, for example, one of the things you see at the beginning is the prophecy and the birth of Christ. You see Christ, as foretold by God, comes to earth as a child, and he begins his ministry thereafter, preaching the good news that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The book of Acts opens the exact same way. As God promised, someone comes. But this time, it's not Jesus. Jesus actually leaves at the beginning. This time, it's the Holy Spirit. And when the Spirit comes, people begin preaching and proclaiming the gospel. The kingdom has come. The kingdom is here. You know, God had been doing something for all of history that is finally fulfilled in the church. He promised from the very beginning of time and all the way through the Old Testament leading up that he would come, that he would come and be among his people. And when Jesus came, people said, this is it. That's why you call him Emmanuel, God with us. God has finally come back with us. But actually, God was going to do something a step further than sending Jesus. He was going to take the spirit of Christ and put it even closer than a human being can be to you. He was going to put the Spirit in your heart so that wherever you went, whatever you did, whatever you undertook, the power of the Spirit of God would be the animating presence in your life. And so the beginning of the book of Acts, it's called the Acts of the Apostles, but most people think it should really be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost and the church is born and the rest of the book is the preaching and the proclamation and the spreading of the kingdom of God by the Spirit. 
So we come to chapter 2. They've appointed another person to take Judas's place, and they come to the day of Pentecost. And it's really important for us to hear the word Pentecost like the Jews in the first century people would have heard the word Pentecost, because this is hugely significant. In the Old Testament, the word Pentecost refers to the Feast of Weeks. And the Feast of Weeks, which is established at Mount Sinai, is the feast where they remember the harvest of the crops. So in the Old Testament, the feasts are not always isolated. A lot of times they go together. So, for example, you have the first feast that goes with the Feast of Weeks is the Passover. And the Passover is not only a celebration of Israel coming out of Egypt, it's also a celebration of the first fruits. So think about this. What happens at the Passover? God says the angel of death is going to come, and if you put blood over the door, he will pass over the firstborn. Why? Because the firstborn belongs to God. The first of everything belongs to God. So in order to spare them, they make a sacrifice, and they put the blood up on their door jam so that he will pass over them and then bring them out of Egypt. And afterwards, what God did was he put this feast at the beginning of the harvest so that they would remember the first of everything is God's. The firstborn, the first harvest, the first fruit, the first wheat, everything is God's. The first part of it is dedicated to him. And so at Passover, you would bring the first of what you had, the best of what you had, as an offering to the Lord. And then, 50 days later, you would celebrate the full harvest. You would celebrate that all the rest is God's as well. So you would bring out of your abundance on the Feast of Weeks and offer it up to the Lord. See, the rhythm of Passover and Pentecost is one little bloom that sprouted in a dead world. Jesus, who dies on the Passover feast, who is one person who is now risen from the dead. The firstborn of the dead, Paul says, who is given preeminence over everything, because he is the first fruits. And then 50 days later, you see the full harvest come in. What we're about to read is that 3,000 people gave their lives to Christ that day. It started with a tiny seed, a tiny bloom, and then a whole crop appears at the Feast of Pentecost. See, this rhythm is actually all through the Bible. You have first fruits and harvest. You have the baptism of Christ in the opening of Luke. He is the person that the Spirit descends on and his power is made perfect through Jesus' ministry. And then all of a sudden, you have the birth of the church and the descent of the Spirit on the church, and they go out and perfect the mission of God to this very day. Christ preaches, suffers, dies, rises again, and all of a sudden in Acts, what are his people doing? They are preaching and suffering and dying and rising as the full harvest of what God is doing. See, the Pentecost for them was a time of expectation, that there would be some kind of bounty, some kind of fullness, some kind of wholeness that God would bring. And I want you to Think in that framework this morning because the church is a harvest. The church is a harvest. It is the fruitful crop of the world that is dedicated to God. It is people who, in the image of God, become the image of Christ in the world. As that first seed was, so the rest of the church begins to be. The church is a harvest. And you see this in all the ways that the church is described in Scripture. So the word for church in Scripture is the word ecclesia. And some churches call themselves ecclesia. There's an ecclesia in Eufaula. And ecclesia just means a gathering. 
right? You actually see it in the book of Acts three times using not church language, just a gathering of people. And it just means that God is gathering his family and his people and his children from all over the earth to be a group of people who are the body of Christ. They are the bride of Christ. They are God's hands and feet on earth. They are the gathering of the Lord. They are the harvest. We are the harvest. If you're here this morning and you believe in Christ, you are part of the fruit that's been produced from the day of Pentecost on. Now, the day of Pentecost also has another dimension that I want you to see this morning. It's one of the places in the Bible where the most Old Testament stories converge on what's happening, right? If there's a picture of your Bible connecting to itself, the day of Pentecost is one of those that has all of these strands from the Old Testament that are connected. And so what I want to do this morning for the rest of our time is I want to look at three of these Old Testament stories that culminate in the day of Pentecost and teach us something about the church. What is the church? Well, the people looking on thought it's the Tower of Babel reversed. That's what it has to be. Look at what happens. So when the day of Pentecost arrives, the people are all in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the house where they were sitting, and divided tongues of fire appeared and rested on each of them. It comes down, and it divides, and it goes over everybody's head, and they immediately begin to be filled with the Spirit, speaking in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Any Jew who had been to Torah school would think, this is like the Tower of Babel all over again. Because remember what happens at Babel. All the people gather together in one place. They've had this huge technological breakthrough. They can now use mortar so they can build really tall buildings. And they decide, we're going to build a tower to the heavens so that we can be honored as the gods that we are. That's really what they were doing. They were saying, we deserve to be up there. The gods deserve to be among us. We have arrived as a human race. And so we're going to build a tower. We're going to go up there and storm the heavens and take our rightful place. So God notices this, right? And I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. The, the funny thing about the Tower of Babel is that the tower is so tall from a human standpoint, and God almost has to squint to look down to see it from the heavens, right? The author of Genesis is really kind of jabbing the people here by saying, it was the greatest human achievement, and God could barely see it from the heavens. It was so small. And so God says, we've got to confuse their language. The idolatry will rise to a rate they will never recover. So what God does is he makes them all speak different languages so that they're not coordinating anymore and they scatter all over the face of the earth, which is what God had wanted them to do in the beginning. He had told Adam and Eve, you need to increase, multiply, fill the earth, cultivate it, spread out, make all of the earth exactly like Eden and the Garden of Eden, a place of worship for God. But they didn't do that. And so God does it for them. He scatters them and gives them different languages. Now, on the day of Pentecost, what happens is that process is undone. See, what happens is the Spirit comes, and everybody who the Spirit rests on begins speaking a different language. But it's a different language that conveys the same message. So everybody there who's hearing this is hearing the message in their own tongue. Now they're no longer scattered they're unified. They're being unified around the preaching of what God has done in Christ. 
God has come down. People have not gone up. God has now come down to earth. It's the cry of every Jew in the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 64, it captures the prayer of the Jews from the time of the exile all the way to Jesus. They say, oh God, that you would rend the heavens and come down. That's the desire of every heart is that God would return to his people. And for 400 years, they waited. It was like a story that had been written that was missing the final chapters. The characters are there. The plot is there. We kind of know how it ends, but what's God going to do? And all of a sudden, like I said, he sends his son, Jesus, and then beyond that, he sends his spirit. He comes down so that he can be in our hearts, in our souls forever. Now there's no divide between the temple and the holy of holies and the people. The veil is torn, it is rended, and God has come out and he has put his spirit in us to be a temple. And so when Pentecost happens, they realize this is the moment that they were trying to create, that God has come down and he is one with his people. The second thing from the Tower of Babel that they would have recognized is that God was bringing clarity out of chaos. The world is total chaos. You don't have to live very long to figure out people, when you put a ton of them together, there is chaos. And what God is doing is bringing some clarity in the chaos. Because now in humanity, there is one unifying principle. There is one Lord, Paul says, one body, one spirit, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And it is the job of the church to bring that clarity to the world. There's one Lord. There is one church. There is one baptism. There is one way of salvation. There is one thing to do with your sin. There is one God who is waiting for you for all eternity. Just one. Just one. And the church is testifying to that one in the midst of many. There are so many other options on every single one of those things, and the church is a witness to say, if you want clarity, there's just one. Now, here's the thing that trips us up sometimes. There's one church. One church. One capital C church. And we get all twisted up about the capital C church and the little C church. Okay, capital C church, there is one. Little C churches, there are many. And we always have to remember that the capital C church supersedes the little c churches. So some people get really dogmatic about how you talk about this. I'm not one of those people, but it is helpful to remember the church, the lowercase c church, is a gathering of a subset of the capital C church. What we're doing here today is not a standalone enterprise. What we're doing is meeting as Christians, as members of the capital C church, in a lowercase c church. So God's one church, there's one bride, there's one body, and we are part of it, and we are meeting as a segment of it. Okay, so this presents big issues, and we can probably err on both sides of this. You can err on the unity side, you can err on the diversity side. So we can't line on everything, but here's a few principles to think about when it comes to church and churches. So a lot of people say, if we could just get back to the New Testament church. We can just get back there to that New Testament, Acts 2 church, which we're going to talk about next week. What were they doing? Today is, what is the church? Next week is, what are we supposed to be doing? And week three is, who's supposed to be leading? So we're looking at the identity of the church, the mission of the church, and the function of the church for the next three weeks. And so sometimes we think, man, if we could just get back to that church, it was awesome. The Acts 2 church was amazing. But what you realize is, there have been different churches from the very beginning. 
So if you look at the letter to the Corinthians, for example, we know that in Corinth they were meeting in multiple house churches. How do we know that? Well, because multiple people are writing about multiple issues they're having in these house churches to Paul, and he's answering them. One of the reasons was because of space. It's okay to divide over space. It's okay to build a bigger building, but it's also okay to just have another church. It's okay, we see in the New Testament, to divide over practice. You see differences between non-gospel issues, non-doctrinal issues between the church in Corinth and the church in Thessalonica. The church in Corinth, charismatic. I mean, wildly charismatic. They've got the gifts on display all the time. They're like, how many words should we have of charismatic utterances? And Paul's like, maybe three. I mean, maybe just three. Let's keep it in order. You never hear that in Galatia. You never hear that in Thessalonica. You never hear that in Colossae. What you see is Paul recognizing that some of these churches are doing some things a little bit differently. There's distinctions in practice. Most importantly, there are distinctions in doctrine. There are distinctions in doctrine. And one of the things that we mature as as believers is recognizing that when it comes to doctrine, there are central gospel issues. If you believe these things, you're a Christian. If you do not believe these things, you're not a Christian. Then there's a next level of things that I would consider second order things, which we believe there's a biblical answer to this. But we disagree among our denominations as to what the answer is. Now, these are ones where it's not just, okay, uh, we can't know. It's, no, we really think we know, but we disagree, and we can both be Christians. So the great example of this is baptism. Do you baptize only adults, only believers' baptism, or do you only baptize babies? Well, I would say we've got Christian groups who believe both of those things. I think there is a right answer. I won't tell you what it is right now, but I think there is a right answer to that. But the church divides over that practice and remains part of the unified church. Then there are third-order issues, which is like, I'm really not sure what the answer is to that. We don't necessarily need to divide over it, but we can. We're not sure. We can talk about it. We can debate. We can have scholars write papers about it, but we're really not sure. That's a third-order issue. Now, what the Bible clearly teaches is if you differ on first-order issues, that would be something like the divinity of Christ, the inspiration of Scripture, that there is one way to heaven, being reunited with God. If you differ over those, what 1 John teaches us is don't worship together. There are doctrinal lines that we cannot cross because here's the principle. That takes you outside the capital C church. So our lowercase c churches are reflective of the capital C church. And if you're not in the capital C church, then the lowercase c churches don't reflect that. Now, that's not to say that you don't have non-believers. I'm sure we have non-believers in every service we ever do. We want them to be welcome here, but we don't reflect that in our church practice. So what we do is we reflect the one true church. It may look a little different than the part of the one true church that you worship at in Oklahoma City or Tulsa or wherever you live. It may look a little bit different than gospel-believing, awesome churches that we partner with in Eufaula, because those are also parts of the Capital C Church. And it may look different from people that we have such huge doctrinal differences with that we would not consider them part of the capital C church because they don't abide by what the Bible describes, right? So we've got unity around doctrine and we have diversity around 
manifestations of the church through practice, through different customs, through different languages, through different spaces. And immediately the church begins to reflect this. The apostles take the church across the world as members of the same church, but as manifestations of different churches. Now, the last thing that we see from the Tower of Babel is the church demands an explanation. The church demands an explanation. So look at what happens in this story. So they're filled with the Holy Spirit. They begin to speak in other tongues. And people from everywhere in the world are dwelling in Jerusalem. And I spared Susan, and I have to read this list of places. But basically, there's places representing the entire known world who are represented in Jerusalem. Because the church is a global church. It's not just an American church. It's not just a Jerusalem church. It's a global church that everyone might know the gospel. And others are standing around, and they're saying, <laughs> we hear them in our own tongues talking about the mighty works of God. And they were all amazed, but they were also perplexed, saying to another, what is, what's going on here? What does this mean? And I love this. They say, I think they're probably filled with new wine. These people are drunk. And I wouldn't put this down as like a litmus test, but I do wonder sometimes, does anybody think that about our worship services anymore? And they say, no, 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 we're not drunk. Let me give you an explanation of what's going on here. These people have been so filled with the Holy Spirit that they can't hold it in. These people are so excited to proclaim what God has done. We'll give you the explanation. God sent his son. Peter preaches this awesome sermon. It's the plan for the fullness of time. Jesus came to deal with your sin finally and fully so that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. That's why these people are so beside themselves as to what's happening. And the church today needs an explanation. Yesterday and the day before, several of us, probably a dozen of us, were serving in Eufaula for a, a Love the Community event. And I do want to thank everybody in our church that participated, either by giving, by helping, by packing boxes, by standing out on the curb yesterday with a sign saying free food. Thanks to Dane and Jennifer for doing that. And blessing the community. And, we, and when the people came by, we were, giving, we were talking to them, and we were getting some information, we were doing prayer requests. And so we got to pray with so many of these people yesterday as we gave them bags of food. And the most common thing that they said was, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? And it was like the greatest intro ever to talk about what we were doing. You know, you didn't have that much time because there's a line of cars, so you give them a little shorthand, like, we're doing this because Jesus loves us, and because he loves us, we love you. Or we're doing this because we have a Heavenly Father that we believe can do anything, and we're going to take what's going on in your life, and we're going to pray to God that he would impact it, that you'd come to know it. You know, we said, do you know what it's like to be given an amazing gift? Do you know what it's like to have something that you can never repay? You know the only thing better than that? Giving. The Bible says it's more blessed to give than receive. We have received something we can never even begin to repay. And so we are spending what we've been given on other people. You know, like, can I go ahead and pull forward a little bit? They couldn't even fathom why somebody would do this. They're like, can we give something to you? They're like, no, we're just giving stuff away. And the more we were there yesterday, the more people we talked to, I thought, the church always has to, to have an explanation for what it's doing. Because what we're doing should look totally countercultural. If you think about the beginning of the church, people are walking by the Spirit, they're speaking it in tongues, languages that everybody can hear in their own tongue, that requires an explanation. 
But even beyond that, they're serving one another. They're giving away what they have, and they're blessing each other, and they're pretending like what they have belongs to God, so they're giving it away, and people are like, we need an explanation for that. And then there's unity across social lines. You know, the biggest problem in the early church was, how do you have Jews and Gentiles who historically hate each other worshiping in the same churches? You had racial differences, you had cultural differences, you had socioeconomic differences. You had, in the New Testament, we see slaves and their masters worshiping in the same church, and that caused problems. They're like, how do you explain this? The church always needs an explanation. And the people who are watching the day of Pentecost realize, oh, the explanation is God is uniting all people in his church. He is uniting all people under his Savior, Jesus Christ. In fact, in three weeks on Labor Day weekend, we're starting the book of Ephesians. And the book of Ephesians, the theme verse of Ephesians is, God is summing up all things in Christ. God is adding up. He is reconciling. He is putting all things under the heading of Christ. The explanation for what we're doing is, it's all for Christ. It's all for him. All glory to him. Everything for him. Our hearts, our lives, for him. Now, they might have been thinking about another story of the Old Testament when they saw what was going on in Pentecost. And this story comes from Numbers chapter 11. In Numbers 11, Moses has just led the people out of Egypt, and the Israelites have begun complaining. And they say things like, we got to get a new leader. We've, we've got Moses up here who thinks he's better than everybody, and we think we could lead better than he could. And you have this mutiny rise up, and Moses is exhausted. I mean, think about this. By a conservative estimate, there are a million Israelites at this point. So I don't know what the, I don't know what the numbers are on like the OKC metro area, but that plus some more, one leader wandering around in tents, eating manna, he's breaking open rocks for water for everybody. I mean, he is exhausted as a leader. So here's what happens. He goes before God and he says, I can't do this anymore. In fact, why don't you just go ahead and kill me now and then I won't have to deal with these Israelites anymore. And God says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to have you gather the elders of Israel. I'm going to have you gather 70 people, and I'm going to take part of your spirit, and I'm going to extend it out and spread it across the rest of the people. So what happens is the Holy Spirit that was in Moses gets divided up, and it gets put on all these other leaders who are now empowered to go and lead the way Moses was leading. What happened at the day of Pentecost is he took the spirit of Christ. God takes the spirit of Christ and he begins to put it on all these other leaders to say, now you go and do what Christ did. You go and do what Jesus was doing. You go and preach. You go and tell people. You go and serve people. You go and lay down your life for people because now you are empowered by the same spirit. Remember what Paul says? The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is in you. See, the story of Pentecost is an empowering story. Not, not only is the church unified and spreading out across the face of the earth, the church is empowered to do the work that God has called it to do because we have the Holy Spirit. You are now authorized. If you have trusted in Christ, you are now authorized by the gift of the Holy Spirit to go and take the message of the church everywhere. And it's not just that you're authorized, you are compelled to do that. Part of the Christian life is realizing that our whole life is now on mission. We're now on mission. There are no players on the bench in Christianity. Everybody is on the field playing. 
Everybody is in the game. You are in the game because you have the Holy Spirit. This is God's plan A. There's a reason that we're called the church, and it's because we need each other to carry out the mission. It's not like God just chose one superstar and is like, everybody else, that person's going to get it, and everybody else just cheer them on as they go. This is not like a tactical guerrilla warfare. This is overwhelming army of Christians taking the mission of God to the world. So this group of people is commissioned, they're briefed, they're restored, they're sent out, they come together every week to be refreshed and encouraged to hear the word preached, and then they go and they take the church everywhere. The church gathers and the church scatters, and it's still the church because the church is the people of God who have been commissioned by him to take the Great Commission to the ends of the earth. So people probably realized, if that's what's happening to them, then I've got to be a part of it. If I'm a Christian, I have to live on mission. Now, here's the last thing. Some of the people looking on and listening to Peter's sermon probably thought of a different story in the Old Testament. Because when Peter stands up in verse 14, and he's with the 11, and he's lifting up his voice, and he's addressing them, and he, and he shouts out this prophecy from the book of Joel, that the Spirit is going to be poured out on all flesh, and all kinds of amazing things are going to happen. But the most amazing thing in verse 21 is that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord is going to be saved. Anybody who calls on him. And he says, look, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him, this Jesus was delivered up according to the plan and foreknowledge of God, and you crucified him and killed him. This is, I heard Andy Stanley say one time, the message of Peter's sermon is so simple. It's an easy three-part sermon. Jesus is God, you killed him, apologize. That's the message. Jesus is God, you guys killed him. He's in Jerusalem. They would have known the spot. Now, repent. Repent. You get to the end of the sermon, and these people are cut to the heart, and they say, what should we do? Given that this is true, what should we do? And Peter says, okay, this is, this is simple. Peter says to them, repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Christ Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise that I was just talking about is for you. It's for you and your children. And for everyone who feels far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his words were baptized, and there were added that day 3,000 souls. You can barely read this without thinking of this final story, and it's in Ezekiel chapter 37. The prophet Ezekiel goes out to this land where there's been a battle, and there are corpses all over this valley. And God tells Ezekiel, I want you to preach to those dry bones. I want you to give the message of life to this dead army of people. And Ezekiel could barely believe this. He's like, are you serious? And he says, just say what I told you to say. And as Ezekiel opens his mouth and preaches, those bones start to rattle a little bit. And then they begin to stand up. And then they get to be covered with tendons and flesh. And before you know it, there is a spirit army of soldiers who have been raised up by the words of God through Ezekiel to fight the battle that God has for them. They are now God's new people by his spirit raised up to life again. They were dead, now they're alive, and they're on mission. 
And the story of the dry bones is exactly what happened on the day of Pentecost. That you had thousands of people standing there, whether they knew it or not, they were dead. Dead, dead. Spiritually dead, never coming back. Ephesians 2 says, so dead that it would require an act of God to bring them back to life. And that's exactly what God did. On that day, there was an army of dry bones that got up and came back to life. The day of Pentecost is a preview of what's happened throughout the entire history of the church. God's word goes out, and dead, dry bones come to life. That's the power of the church. Paul actually quotes this same prophecy from the book of Joel in Romans chapter 10. And this is right after that famous verse where he says, okay, what do you need to do to be saved? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that he is the Son of God, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction now between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then Paul gives us a little how-to manual. He says, How then could they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? For it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed from what he has heard from us? And listen to this. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. How are they supposed to call if we don't go tell them? And how are we supposed to go tell them if we're not sent, if we don't gather together, hear from the word, and get sent out to go and preach life-changing, resurrecting words to the world? What happened on Pentecost is a preview of what's still happening, dry, dead bones rising up to life. The church is an outpost of heaven. It's a preview of what God is going to do in all eternity. Gather his people forever with him. But I don't want to close without saying this. Peter's sermon that day requires a response. Most of us are used to responses at the end of a sermon. And I don't want to focus on the response at the end of the sermon today to miss the response in your life as you go and live out God's calling as you preach the gospel, as you share your story, as you serve people, there's going to need to be a response. And I thought yesterday, when we were out there handing out food, how similar that is to the call of the church to all the nations. Do you remember in Isaiah chapter 55, Isaiah prophesies what it'll be like when the Messiah comes. And he says, come, everybody who's thirsty, come to the water. Come and drink and buy bread with, without price. If you're hungry, if you're thirsty, come. We have bread and water for you. And then, do you remember at the end of the Bible, they quote this same verse in Revelation 22. The Spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who desires to take the water of life without price, let that person come. The call of the church is, come. Come to the Savior. Come be a part of God's family. Come be a part of God's church. We are the church. This is our mandate. Anybody who calls, come. Anybody, come. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for your church this morning. Father, not just that the church in history has been amazing and resilient and powerful, but that your church now is all of those things. Father, help us to see this morning that we too have the Holy Spirit. That those of us who have trusted in Christ have been commissioned as your plan A for our world. Father, to bless the nations through what you're doing in us. Father, bring unity in our church. Father, help us to see the places where we need to agree, the places where we have to draw lines, the places where we are following your word no matter what anybody says. And then, Father, give us a vision of your global church. Father, there are the many ways that you are working around this that we can be a part of. Father, I think of all the churches that are represented here. People go here and they go somewhere else. And what a great picture of that is. Of the gathering in heaven from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. When the church is united as your bride. Purified and glorified and with you forever. Give us a vision, Lord, that transcends this church to the church that we are a part of. Father, give us grace. Send us out this morning with your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and worship. Let's respond to the word this morning.